Well, I'm going to get right into the Word today. We've been lighting these lamps every Sunday of Advent here, beginning with this light of hope over here. We believe this is a season and a time like never before, but every year at Christmas when people are more open to the hope of the gospel. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that even the secular stations are singing about Emmanuel, God with us? Amen. You understand, it's a unique time of year. That doesn't happen most times. But right now is a time where people are open to the message of gospel, and that's why it's so important that we light up this lamp of hope and we point people to the hope that is an anchor for our souls. So let's turn up this light of hope a little bit brighter today. And then we're lighting up the lamp of love. Last week we talked about love. The Bible says that God demonstrated love in a tangible way. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only begotten son. And so last week we lit up this lamp of love. And we're going to continue to do it today. We're going to light up the lamp of love. And in just a moment, we're going to move towards joy. But before we do, I want to draw your attention to this. This lantern we have in the middle, because on Christmas Eve, we're going to light the Christ candle, and I want to encourage you to do something with me. Two things, really. I want you to ask this question of yourself. Number one, who can I bring? You know, this is our third service this morning, and and I I praise God that you're here, And and I know several are online. I just logged on for a moment to greet those in our online audience. I know that people are connecting in the building and online, but the reality is that this service is the third service today. This room has been filled many times today, so in spite of all the craziness, even as recent as this week of new information coming out and new restrictions and new protocols as a culture that we're trying to follow to to stop the spread of this infectious disease, the reality is people's hearts are hungry for God's presence. Their hearts are hungry for God's presence. Yours is, and you testify by being here today. But I want to tell you, if your heart, in spite of the week we've had, is still hungry for God's presence enough to say, you know what? Being in God's house matters. I'm coming to church today. I don't want to miss out. I want to promise you there are other people that need God's presence in their life. And one invitation could be all the difference to inspire them to come. So the first question I want to challenge you with is, who are you going to bring? Who is that person or those people that they're comfortable getting in your car? Maybe they're family. Maybe they're your next-door neighbors. Maybe they're your kids' best friends or your coworkers. But who can you bring? And the second question is, who can you invite? To just simply extend an invitation. Let somebody know, hey, I'm going to be at the 1.30 service on Christmas Eve. I hope you'll meet me there. Or I'm going to be there at 3 o'clock or 4.30. Or I'm coming to the 6 p.m. service. But we're taking one hour together on Christmas Eve to, to slow down and to lean in with our hearts and to gaze at Christ who's come to Bethlehem's manger. I want to challenge you. Bring somebody and invite somebody to be a part of those services. Are you ready to light up joy a little bit today? Amen. Let's turn up the lamp of of joy a little bit brighter as we go to God's word. In Luke chapter 2, the first statement that we hear after the birth of Jesus the Messiah is an angelic proclamation. And it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. 
They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, I just got to emphasize that because I've talked to people before that said, well, I would believe like if I heard the voice of God or I would believe like if I saw an angel. I don't know if you're one of those people that wishes you could see an angel. Can I just tell you, I am not. And this is why. Everywhere that angels show up in scripture, the response is always that people were terrified. So get the Hallmark version out of your head. You probably don't want to see an angel. You'll be terrified too. And here are these shepherds, and they're terrified. But look at the next verse. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. And I want to read this next sentence out loud together. Can we all read why they shouldn't be afraid? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That's why the angels made the trip. And here's the news. They said in verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, I I know joy is not a hard concept to grab at Christmas time. I mean, we've all seen the movies We all know how the story ends, even if you haven't seen the movie, right? You've all tuned into the Hallmark Channel before. We've all sang the songs before. We know we're supposed to be having a holly jolly Christmas. We know that this season's supposed to be merry and bright. We've all heard the songs. We've sang them. We've watched the stories. The idea of joy is not an unfamiliar concept, but can I tell you that the good news of great joy that the angels brought had nothing to do with warm, fuzzy feelings of holiday cheer. In fact, I I would agree wholeheartedly with what Tim Keller says about Christmas. And I quote, Christmas is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It doesn't say, cheer up, let's all pull together and we can make the world a better place. The Bible doesn't counsel indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusion that we can defeat it ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix this thing if we try hard enough. Nor does Christianity agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there's hope. Aren't you thankful that you've got a nevertheless in your story? (laughs) Nevertheless, there is hope. See, the message of Christmas is that a light has dawned on a people who walked in darkness. It doesn't say that light sprang up from the world, but light penetrated the darkness. That's the reality of the good news that brings great joy. And here's what I've discovered in this season. Having joy is not actually that hard. What's hard is holding joy. Have have you experienced that? I I mean, I I might be joyful again by lunchtime. Depends on how that goes. We'll see. But I can lose it again by supper. 
And maybe you've been in that place in this season where, where as I'm talking about joy, it's not that you don't know joy or that you haven't tasted joy, but you've discovered that joy is slippery. That, that sometimes it's just hard to hang on to. Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Philippi, said this about joy. In chapter 4, verse 12, he said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. Here, Here was Paul's declaration of finding joy. He said in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. See, Paul the apostle had discovered something that was more satisfying, something that was more sustaining than temporary happiness, than pleasures of seasons and holidays. What the apostle Paul actually discovered is that what he was looking for was actually a who. That's why he said in that same letter, he said, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He found contentment. And the good news that causes great joy is this, that unto you is born a savior. There was a king who was suffering from an ailment and he called all of his astrologers together. And he asked his astrologers to give him advice. What should I do to get over this ailment? And here was their advice. They said, you need to find a contented man. And you need to take his shirt and wear it day and night. And then you'll be clothed with contentment. And so the king sent out his servants. He said, go out and find a contented person in my realm. And they were gone for a day, two days, three days, a week. Months go by. Finally, the servants come back. And the king says, did you find a contented man in my kingdom? And they said, yes, one. (laughs) We found a contented man. The king said, well, where's his shirt? And they said, king, he didn't have a shirt. (laughs) Isn't it funny how we can put our hopes for joy and peace and fulfillment in the things of this world? But lasting joy is not found in things. The happiness is based on happenings. It's circumstantial, but contentment is found in true joy, and joy is sustainable. I want to take the time that we have left today to go to just one passage of Scripture in James chapter 1. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, James chapter 1, the brother of Jesus talks to us about joy, and I believe there's something we can learn. He writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't know if you've noticed in 2020, But how you count things is really important. Have you watched the news lately? 
Did you know we have states that are suing other states because of how you count things? See, I, I like the, the King James translation of James chapter 1, verse 2. What I just read says, consider it all joy. But, but the King James Bible says, count it all joy. And I think it's pretty important how you count things. How about you? In fact, I read a statement this week that was credited to the communist dictator, Joseph Stalin. He said, those who cast the votes decide nothing. Those who count the votes decide everything. Now, I didn't say all that to ruffle your political feathers today. I could care less what your opinion is right now about all of that. I brought that up to emphasize the point that in a democracy, that's a big problem. When the votes that are cast aren't trusted to be counted. We've got lots of issues going on in our culture because of the way things are counted. But can I tell you, when it comes to the spirit man, when it comes to the soul of a man or woman of God, this is an incredible promise. That it doesn't matter what's been cast at you, you get to decide how it's counted. You may have had sickness cast your way. You may have had a job loss cast your way. You may have had financial troubles cast your way. But you can choose how it's counted. And the word of God says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. How do we reconcile the goodness of God in the midst of the kind of year we're having? I think a lot of people are asking that question. It's not that we don't believe God's good. It's just that it's hard to make sense of what we're facing. And this is what I really want you to grab out of this verse as James tells us, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, consider it pure joy if you face trials of many kinds. Don't you wish that's what the text said? Like, as if maybe there was an option that we would get out of this thing unscathed. But I can promise you, it's not if, it's when. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. See, a lot of people think that if you're facing a trial, then, then maybe that, that you lack faith. But I, I would say that maybe the very opposite is true. If you're facing a trial, that in itself may be an indication that you are a person of faith. Because as I read the testimony of Scripture, I see over and over again that this is the reality for men and women of God. When Paul was trying to encourage young Timothy, a pastor in the church, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, in fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When Paul and Barnabas were doubling back on their missionary journey to go and encourage all the churches that they had planted, the Bible records what they said in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. It says, they were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. That's the kind of encouragement the churches needed. But then Luke tells us what they said. Paul and Barnabas said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This is the guy that wrote half the New Testament. He says, not only are you going to experience hardships, but hardships are the very door into the kingdom. You're going to experience difficulties. When Peter wrote his epistle to the church in 1 Peter 4.12, he said, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange 
were happening to you. So Peter says, hey, church, this is, I, I know this feels unprecedented, if we can abuse that word one more time in 2020. But don't think this strange. Would you just look at somebody and tell them, this is normal? Just, yeah, this is normal. I know it feels unprecedented. I know it feels unusual. I know you feel like maybe you're doing this faith thing wrong because surely nobody can trust God and go through a trial like I've been going through. But Jesus even said in John 16, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Jesus promised it. Peter promised it. Paul promised it. James promised it. It is a reality. And the truth is we can, we can lose grip on joy if we don't expect that trials will come. Now, I'm not trying to talk you into a place of despair. We don't anticipate with joy the trial, but we know they're coming. See, I, I'm concerned for some of my Christian friends and for a lot of my unchristian friends, or shall I say my not yet Christian friends, I'm concerned when I see how much hope people are putting in turning their calendar over from December 31st to January 1st. Have you noticed it? You feel it, the buildup? You know, and what we've done is we've taken every bad thing that could have happened to us this year and we've just quantified it under this big umbrella called 2020. Like, oh, that's just, it's 2020, you know? I mean, even the date is almost like a cuss word, you know? I mean, if you burn the chicken, it's 2020, you know? I broke a heel, 2020, you know? And I'm concerned for people that somehow think that if I can just survive this year, that all of a sudden we're going to put a new calendar on the office wall and magically our problems are going to go away. But can I tell you what Jesus would say about 2021? In this world, you will have trouble. Unless he comes, unless the second advent happens before we turn over a new year, in this world, we're still going to have trouble. Peter would say, don't think it's strange. The fiery trial, this is normal. James would tell you, go ahead and count it joy. Don't count it the way it was cast. Count it joy because it's producing something in your life. See, our outlook determines our outcome. And our attitude determines our actions. And so it's not a pessimistic thought, but it's just a principle that we have to understand that we can expect that trials will come. When James wrote this letter and when Peter wrote his epistle of 1 Peter, they both addressed them the same way. Both of the writers said, it, they, they wrote it this way, they said, to God's people scattered among the nations. Now, if you got a letter, you know who you are. But they were intentional to address the letter as God's people scattered among the nations. They didn't say sheltered, although certainly God was protecting them. No, he said scattered, and they knew why they were scattered. It was persecution that created the forwarding address of the church. And it's almost like both of them in the beginning of their letter are saying, the reason I'm writing to you, the reason this letter is getting you where you are, it's getting to you there because you were scattered, because you went through a trial, because you faced persecution. The reality is this, we will have trials, but in the midst of it, we can have a confident 
joy. We can know what Romans 8.28 says is true in our lives, that in all things God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Some of this stuff, you got to count it different. You just got to say, you know what, this is the all things. <laughs> this is some of the all things that God's working together for the good. By itself, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to go ahead and count it different. I'm going to count it as joy. It might have been cast as sorrow, but I'm going to count it as joy. I want you to notice something else in verse 2 here in James 1. He says, consider it pure joy. Not just when you face many kinds of trials. He says when you face trials of many kinds. In other words, consider it joy when a whole bunch of trials come at the same time. It's almost like he knew what we were going to be in this year. Have you ever had those moments in your life where your trials have trials? You, it's like compound interest. on Like you had a problem, a, a global health pandemic, but then because of that trial, your business closed down. And because of that trial, your finances ran short. And then you had a marriage trial on your hands. And then Christmas came, and now you got a financial trial. And he says, look, you can consider it joy. Count it joy when you have many kinds of trials. When they all converge on your life at once. How do we do that? How do we count it? Joy. Look at the text with me again. Verse 3, he says, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. See, Satan would love for you to think that because your faith is being tested, that you're, you're faithless. The enemy would love for you to think that because your faith is being tested, that you don't, you don't trust God, that you're not depending on God. I would say the very opposite is true. Until your faith is tested, you don't even know what kind of faith you have. One writer said it like this, until all we have is faith, we don't know how much faith we have. And so faith has to be tested. It's, it's proved in the fire, Peter said. Proverbs says, the, the furnace, silver for the crucible and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Can I show you a verse that I just don't like? There are those. I mean, I like most of the scriptures, but I'm just going to be honest with you. There are some verses I just don't like, and I'm going to show you one of them. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Now, I know all the letters are capital on the screen, but that's a capital S spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I hate that verse. I mean, come on. Don't you wish that everything the Spirit of God led you to was blessing? Don't you wish that everything the Spirit of God led you into was what you would call favor? It was provision and and joy, and peace, and I, but I got to deal with this reality. The Bible says in the previous verses that Jesus had stepped into the Jordan River to be baptized by his first cousin, John, and when he came up out of the waters, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of the dove. It was a physical illustration to communicate to John that this is the Lamb of God. So he has the, the, the presence of God resting on his life, and then the Bible says a voice from heaven spoke. And God said, this is my son in whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. I mean, you can't, you can't describe a more perfect moment of favor, of blessing. I mean, you would expect the next thing that's going to happen is, you know, Jesus gets an unexpected check in the mail, right? 
Somebody blesses him with a new car. You know, somebody, you would think that maybe something really great is going to happen because the presence of the Holy Spirit's on his life and God has spoken his favor and his love over him. But the next verse says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Can I encourage somebody today that your trial does not disqualify your faith? If anything, your trial proves that your faith exists. Listen, trials don't nullify faith. Trials purify faith. That's what James is getting at. He's saying you can, you can count it as joy. You can consider it joy. Why? Because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. When Peter used this illustration, grabbing it from the Old Testament of, of trials being like a fire, he said, dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I can't help but think that Peter was thinking about his own circumstance when he wrote that. In Acts chapter five, the Bible says Peter and the other apostles were flogged the same way that Jesus was flogged with a cat of nine tails and received the 39 stripes on his back. Peter experienced that in chapter five of Acts, but verse 41 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin after being flogged, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. How can you count that joy? How can you find something to rejoice in that? He said, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then in verse four, James writes, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Maybe you've wondered a time or two this year, what is God up to in 2020? What, what, what is God even doing in my life through these circumstances? What, what is he doing in the church? What is God up to? Can I tell you what he's up to? James tells us right here. God wants to finish his work in your life. He wants perseverance to finish its work in you so that you would be mature, so that you would be complete, so that you would be able to say, I lack Nothing. And maybe that's why the message first came to the shepherds in the field. I mean, if you think about it, shepherds understand, maybe better than anybody, what it is to completely care for the needs of the sheep. It was literally their one job. One job, to take care of the sheep. And I wonder if that's not why God used a shepherd, David, to write the most famous psalm ever penned, Psalm 23. And David begins with these words. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. And James is saying that's the place that God wants you to get to. That's the reason you can consider it joy when you face 
difficult situations. I was thinking about that psalm this week and what it must have taken for David to get to the place that he had this revelation. If the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Because the, the psalm is written all in the positive sense. But just imagine what's not being said. If we can just read between the lines a little bit. David goes on to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures and, and he leads me beside quiet water. So surely he must have had moments in his life where the waters were raging. He must have had moments in his life when he was thirsty and when he was hungry that he came to the realization that with the Lord as my shepherd, I lack nothing. He's the one that's leading me beside the still waters and makes me to lie down and rest in green pastures. He goes on to say he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. Surely David could remember moments that he went on the wrong path. And it was those seasons where God brought him back and corrected him that he could say, I lack nothing when the Lord is my shepherd because the Lord leads me on the right path. David goes on to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Most certainly David had moments in his life where he felt the isolation and the loneliness of walking through a dark valley. And it was in those moments that he sensed the nearness of God. He sensed the, the touch of the shepherd's staff. And he came away with this revelation. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. See, the key to abiding joy is found in the presence of Jesus. Having joy is one thing. Holding on to it sometimes is something altogether different. And the key to holding on to joy is abiding in the presence of the Lord. And can I say to you that that is the story all throughout Scripture. It's not just that, that God came near to us at Christmas time. The whole message of the Bible is God pursuing us. It's God drawing near. As the worship team comes, I, I want to just take you back in your minds to the story of God's people, Israel. Everything about their, their faith was tethered to the presence of God. His presence was the very center of their gatherings. In fact, when God gave Moses the instructions to build a tabernacle, one of the first things he said to put in place was a table. Here's the first thing I want you to build. I want you to put a table there to display the bread of my presence. So that every time you come in, you have a visual reminder that my presence is here, that the Lord supplies our daily bread. He said, I want, I want you to have my presence there. And as God led them those years through the wilderness, it was his presence. It was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In fact, there's one moment in the story that, that God was so frustrated with the people of Israel. He literally said to Moses, there's the promised land. I'm going to let you have it. But I'm not going with you. He was so, he was so frustrated with him. He said, look, I, I, I'm a God of my word. I said I was going to give you that land. There it is. You can have it. But I'm not going with you. And I love Moses' response in this moment. Moses says to the Lord in Exodus 33:15, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. In other words, Moses 
understood that joy, that contentment, that satisfaction is not in receiving the promises. It's in having the presence of the Lord. And he said, I don't even want the promise if it doesn't come with your presence. God, I want you. I need you near me. If you're not with me, don't send me. Don't bless me. So you understand, even if the Spirit of the Lord leads you into a wilderness, if the Spirit of the Lord is leading you there, it's worth the trip. It's worth it. Because in the presence of the Lord, the psalmist said, there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The key to abiding joy is abiding in the presence of the Lord. You don't have to be strong to have joy. Sometimes because joy is slippery, we feel like we're, we're not doing good enough, we're not trying hard enough. If I were just if I were strong, if I were a stronger Christian, it doesn't work that way. In fact, Nehemiah 8:10 says, "The joy of the Lord is our strength." So you don't have to fight for joy. You can fight from joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength in the battle. And the key to having joy is having God's presence. David, who was a great king and wrote most of the Psalms, had a tragically low point. Many of you know the story. He committed adultery, which led to a cover-up, which led to murder, which led to an unexpected pregnancy and the loss of a child. And over a year of his life, living in secret sin and shame. But at some point, he finally hit rock bottom. David called out to God. And we have his prayer recorded in Psalm 51. He repented. He said, God created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then he said something else. And... and I just feel that maybe today somebody needs to pray this prayer for themselves. In Psalm 51, he said to the Lord in verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, David understood that, that my, my joy is in your presence. I don't care if you don't restore the crown. I don't care if you, if you don't restore my dreams or, or give me another child or, or fix the problems. What I, what I have to have is your presence. God, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then he said these words, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because that's good news that causes great joy. A Savior born to you this day in the city of David. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I love this next part. There's so much grace in this. And grant me a willing spirit. In other words, even while David's repenting, even while David's praying, he acknowledges, you know what, there's parts of my life I don't even want to try anymore. I'm not even willing. But while I'm asking for forgiveness, while I'm asking for your presence, while I'm asking for you to restore all the things that I've squandered, could I go ahead and go a step farther? Could I ask that you would make me willing to do the things I'm unwilling to do? And maybe that's you today. Maybe you, you just had one too many trials and you feel like 
the last straw broke the camel's back and you're not even willing. You're not even willing anymore. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out. Would you pray this prayer? Because you can get a hold on joy again. I want to ask you to bow your head with me. All over this room, those of you that are watching online, let's go before the Lord today in prayer. God, I pray today that you would restore the joy of our salvation. Listen, if you're listening to this message and you you haven't given your heart and life to the Lord, you need to experience the joy of salvation for the first time. And you can do it right now. Just surrender your life to Jesus. Tell him in your own words, God, I give you my life. Lord, I'm trusting you. I can't hold it together anymore. And I realize today, as I'm listening to the word of God, that I was never intended to hold it all together. But Jesus, you came to save me, to rescue me because I needed saved. And so God, I pray today that whether it's a first time decision or for some of us, it's been a long journey, but God, today, would you restore the joy of our salvation? And God, for the, for the ones that feel so discouraged by the weight of care, for those that feel like they, they can't go another round, they can't go another day, they can't deal with another of the many trials, God, grant them a willing spirit to sustain them Ignite hope again, God. Give them a willing spirit. Restore their joy again. In Jesus' name.